1: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. It's been a week since Hong Kong made world headlines with a government order that 2,000 pet hamsters has to be euthanized due to fears of cross-infection of the Delta variant of COVID-19. It's been a week since 16 people tested positive to the Omicron variant in a tower block in the Kwai Chung housing estate in the New Territories, 10 kilometers northwest of the ferry terminal to Hong Kong Island. Hong Kong is experiencing the harsh lessons learned in major cities around the world over the past two years, while it enjoyed one of the world's lowest infection and death rates. In this age of new variants of the coronavirus, the situation escalates very quickly. Welcome to the latest variant of the Inside China pandemic podcast. My name is Holly Chek. Over the weekend, Hong Kong recorded its highest number of COVID-19 cases in 18 months. In the past 72 hours we've witnessed triple-digit increases in new cases. And now, there are four major clusters of infection in Hong Kong. The pet shop, where hamsters tested positive the Delta, a restaurant, a cross infection from inside one of Hong Kong's quarantine hotels, and what's now known as the Birthday Party Cluster, which has entangled members of Hong Kong's political and lawmaking establishment. And in the Kwai Chung housing estate, multiple apartment towers are now under five to seven day lockdowns. No one gets in, no one gets out. All of this in a background where more than 1,000 restaurants are forecast to close due to the ongoing 6pm restrictions imposed by the government, and tens of thousands of bartenders, waitresses, chefs, dishwashers, and other staff used to work the evening shift try to figure out how to survive with no income in what is usually the busiest time of the year. And that's on top of almost daily warnings from the finance sector that Hong Kong's severe quarantine restrictions for both incoming travelers and returning residents, regardless of vaccine status or COVID test, is damaging, even destroying Hong Kong's place and reputation as Asia's global financial hub. But we need to keep things in perspective. In the past two years, Hong Kong has been one of the safest places to be in the pandemic. We've had just over 13,000 infections and 200 fatalities in total in these past two years. Right now, we've had zero deaths this year, and there are no people in critical condition in our hospitals. There's been no violent anti-vax marches here, no people invoking the Jewish Holocaust and refusing to wear masks. But there is rising concern about the costs of Hong Kong's dedication to the zero COVID strategy and a slow rate of vaccination for the elderly. In this episode, you're going to hear from the Hong Kong microbiologist who posted to Facebook and found himself an unwilling poster boy for letting the virus loose in the community. You're going to hear from the head of Hong Kong's Vets Association about the reality of the hamster call, the science behind it, and why there could have been a better alternative than demanding children hand over their pets to be killed. You're going to hear an update on the reality facing Hong Kong's banking and finance industry, the executive exodus, the push to relocate to Singapore, and what it means for Hong Kong's position as a financial gateway to mainland China. And you're going to hear from one of my colleagues on the Hong Kong desk here at the South China Morning Post about what it's like to try and track the daily spread of Omicron and Delta here in Hong Kong. And you're going to hear me try to present this podcast in my living room as my neighbours continue drilling what sounds like a tunnel in a wall next door. And something else about this podcast. Three hours after we originally published it, Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam made the surprise announcement that the 21-day quarantine for arrivals to Hong Kong is about to be reduced to 14 days. Get the update at scmp.com. But first, let me take you back one week to the extraordinary scenes outside the gates of Hong Kong's agriculture, fisheries and conservation department. There's a queue of people carrying cages, containers and bags waiting to hand their pet hamsters over to be tested.
2: It's not like they're giving them back to us after they test negative. They're sending them away for euthanasia. So we have no choice but to follow their strongly recommended rules. My
1: son has been crying all morning and wouldn't stop because we're telling him we're taking the hamster away to be euthanized. We have to take his beloved hamster and send it to die. To him, it's like a family member or friend. But then, a small group of individuals arrive and offer to adopt the hamsters instead. The goal is to rescue the hamsters. Since yesterday, we have seen many innocent hamsters sent for euthanasia, even though they tested negative. I feel that, in fact, the hamsters are innocent. And even if they don't have the coronavirus, they're still sentenced to death. It makes us very upset and we blame ourselves because we can't help them. So we are here today to save them. It's a reflection of a massive online response from tens of thousands who signed a petition rejecting the government order for a hamster call and thousands to volunteered to adopt them instead. There were scenes that grabbed a global audience. A week later, the decision to kill 2,000 hamsters imported from the Netherlands is still having impact, and the Hong Kong's Vets Association has weighed into the debate.
2: Hi, my name is Dr. Owen Swan. I'm the current president of the Hong Kong Veterinary Association. This
1: is Dr. Owen Swan, and he has just stepped into the hallway next to the operating room of his vet surgery.
2: Just one second. Uh, can you just close this door
1: and say, don't disturb? Dr. Swan, before I ask you about the letter, can I ask you what was your initial reaction when you heard that the Hong Kong government had ordered the culling of thousands of hamsters? And it's not just those in the Causeway Bay pet shop detected with the Delta variant, but any hamsters sold in Hong Kong after December the
2: 22nd. My first reaction uh, was disbelief, to be honest. Um, as vets in, um, in Hong Kong, we were not aware of any decisions that were being made. Uh, we were not privy to any uh, decisions. So we didn't have any background information as to what was going on. And so when it first started breaking out, we were hearing it mostly from clients Uh, for my sake i got uh, i got uh, called by another vet asking me how he was to deal with the situation um, because we'd been given no advice so it was more from a disbelief perspective that the government had suddenly ordered the culling of basically in this situation pets rather than production animals these are uh, actual pets um, with very little information. Before this, we had quite a bit of research about human-to-animal transmission and animal-to-human transmission. And the research up until up until this event occurred was suggestive that animal-to-human transmission from henses should not be occurring. So our initial reaction definitely was disbelief. And then it was also... A little bit of disorganization, and trying to find out and trying to get in contact with people to find out what was happening. And as a HKVA president, what should I be advising to um, the vets on the ground that are on the front line?
1: Right. Dr. Swan, can you tell us more about the calls between peers, um, you know, vets? What were they talking to each other? And also, what were the calls um, from clients about? What questions did they ask?
2: Okay, so from the vets, which is where I received it first, um, a lot of the vets, especially exotic vets, um, the exotic specialists, were contacting me as HKVA president to find out why the government was ordering that. They were of the opinion that the research up until now showed that in hamsters, which have been used a lot for research animals in COVID, a lot of labs have used ham- uh, hamsters because they can see what's happening with COVID, that this animal is fairly safe um, and won't have animal to human transmission. Okay? Golden hamsters particularly have been a hamster that's been used a lot in, um, in research in COVID cases. The exotic specialists were citing research papers to me why this should not be happening and basically there was dismay from a lot of the vets obviously as a veterinary perspective we deal from both we deal from both a humane and moral and ethical standpoint and our job prerogative is to provide the best for animals on behalf of the clients what we do for clients is basically um, we look after their best interests which is with this culling, obviously, that's not the case. So immediately, the government's announcements was creating antagonism with the vets, especially because in the initial announcement, there was an announcement that they could consult with the private veterinarians if they had any questions, and yet we hadn't been received any information. Uh, from the public and from clients, um, the first part to this was, should we be giving up our hamsters? Even people who had had the hamsters for a year or six months were immediately worried about the situation. It's obviously not a great situation to suddenly believe that your animal can be affecting you with COVID. So a lot of it was trying to calm down the people to try and assess the situation um, and to try and um, inform people that they didn't have to worry that much, that the likelihood of animal to human transmission was fairly low. And honestly, that's still the case in a home environment. It may be totally different in a pet shop, and we can just talk about that a little bit later, but a pet shop and a, and a warehouse transmission are much higher chances of happening than in a home situation. So that was basically the first situation that we were dealing with. Um, also, people were wanting to give up pets and dump them uh, in the clinics. They were also asking, what about rabbits, chinchillas, guinea pigs, or other types of exotic pets that may, have, uh, may be associated with hamsters, and could they be infected? And should they be um, giving up these pets? And then obviously we have a a certain amount of clients who were outraged by this. And they were phoning to protest about this and even accusing the vests of being uh, included amongst us although that was a fairly small percentage.
1: As I talk to you today, we're seeing news of another human case of the Delta variant linked to a hamster sold in Causeway Bay, which some are seeing as a vindication of the government's decision. But your letter points out that there was a scientific alternative to just killing all the hamsters. Can you take us through that?
2: Prior to this, the research papers, um, and a, a Hong Kong University has done a research papers in hamsters. And basically, the research paper um, in their environment, so again, I'll go back to the environment, is very, very specific with regards to this. And I've had quite a few discussions with Professor Vanessa Bars at uh, CDU University, as well as um, some of the AFC, the officers, about this case now to keep myself updated and to learn more about what's going on. But environment has become a particular part of this which is very similar to the minks in Netherlands. so prior to this the hong kong university had done research in hamsters that showed that hamsters can get the virus and as i've said we've used them as models on which to base human research and treatment on but they usually only shed virus for around about six days six to seven days they would shed virus active virus beyond that they would shed viral fragments so they could still test positive on a test up to 14, 15 days. But those days, if we looked at the gen- uh, genomic sequencing, they were usually just viral fragments, so it couldn't affect humans. So part of our suggestion initially was to quarantine any particularly sick animals for up to six weeks, particularly pets. People who have already taken on an animal and there's an emotional attachment, particularly if they've done that for a child, to, to suddenly hand over that animal for humane euthanasia is traumatic to the family. And we wanted to, um, to encourage the government to try and quarantine these animals and get them through the phase where they uh, are infective and then return them to the owners. Obviously, information has been more forthcoming um, and there has been more development in this period of time. So I also understand attitude and the, the reasons that the government has decided on the human killing. And a large part of that is being zero COVID. Obviously, they want to prevent any further transmissions within the environment. and In Hong Kong, that is very, very applicable. What we're seeing in the pet shops and the warehouses is a little bit similar now to the situation in the Netherlands, where if you have an environment with a high concentrations of animals and there's a lot of dust and aerosol, you can have more chance of transmission. So environment plays a very big role. When you have... 100, 200, 1000 animals together, and they have their cages with dust, Um, they're creating aerosol which can contaminate the environment. When you have one or two hamsters in a home environment and you're cleaning the cages on a regular basis and so on, like that, the chances of infection are far, far lower. But pet shops, and particularly the warehouse, can have a a major impact on this. And this was the same on the mink farms in Netherlands, because there was a large percentage of animals, there's a lot, lot of aerosol contact and therefore the chances of a human, animal to human transmission are increased. And so part of the reason for the government's action on this is the amount of animals and the concentration of animals. They have also argued that they don't have the facilities to quarantine all of these animals.
1: Dr. Swan, in our previous podcast, we pointed to the Hong Kong's pandemic history back in 1997, when millions of chickens were called both in farms and markets, when avian flu was detected. How would you compare that decision with this one?
2: The decision is actually very similar. The Hong Kong's government to to these situations tends to be zero tolerance. They tend to try and eradicate all possible transmission of the disease. The difference in this i suppose comes more to the fact that before we were dealing with production animals that were lined up for food these were not pets where these are pets which have an emotional attachment to humans there's a a major change within that the concern for a lot of vets is what if next time we have a with cats or dogs in the past we did have cats and dogs and honestly the managed that very, very well when, when animals were infected with COVID. We've had cases of both cats and dogs being infected by their owners in Hong Kong, and the AFCD have managed that very well. They placed those animals in quarantine and treated them until they're cured and then released them back to the owners. We were hoping for the same situation, particularly with the hamsters that had already been taken by owners. So I think the major difference is the fact that we're dealing entirely with a pets versus a production animal perspective. Avian influenza also had the uh, uh, potential to kill far more people than COVID has. Although COVID has killed many people, the the virulence and the death percentage is far, far lower than any avian influenza. So that also has to be borne in perspective when you're comparing these decisions.
1: The latest update is that 77 hamsters have been handed in by the public and one single hamster has tested positive. So far, 2,300 hamsters have been euthanized. But one thing that Hong Kong authorities feared most, that just like what happened in Denmark with minks, when animal-to-human transmission of the virus led to a new variant appears to have come true. In the past week, authorities said they have isolated a new variant of the Delta virus within the Causeway Bay pet store cluster. now for someone who made a post to Facebook last weekend and found himself pushed to the front pages of Hong Kong's local newspapers as the poster boy for letting COVID loose in a community. His name is Dr. Siddharth Sridhar.
0: Most people call me Sid, so I just go by Dr. Sid, actually. So it's, it's up to you guys.
1: And he is a microbiologist at the Queen Mary Hospital and clinical assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong. Can you recap your Facebook post concerning zero COVID policy and its usefulness in 2020 um, compared to where we are now? As you said, we are living in a parallel COVID reality.
0: Um, Indeed, we are. I think zero COVID was uh, something that we aspired to ever since the beginning of the pandemic back in 2020. And uh, there were very good reasons for doing that. This was an entirely new virus. We knew we had an aging population. Uh, there, there were no vaccines back in 2020, and uh, it was uh, it was it was quite reminiscent of uh, what was going on with SARS in 2003. So uh, I think in Hong Kong we did absolutely the right thing by you know batting down the hatches, everybody wearing masks, uh, practicing social distancing, tough border controls uh, to keep the virus under control. And then at the end of uh, uh, well early 2021, end of 2020, you had these uh, amazing vaccines come out. And, uh, they've, they've really proven to be game changers in terms of reducing the chances of developing severe COVID if somebody should catch COVID. And, uh, you know, they've saved millions of lives around the world by now. In Hong Kong, these vaccines have been available for a long time already for nearly, well, nine months and counting now. And unfortunately, what has happened locally is that we've had very low vaccination uptake rates. And that is, really hampering us in terms of planning ahead uh, in, in a way. So I, that was what my post was about, in that you see a lot of people getting very frustrated about things in Hong Kong at the moment with uh, simultaneous outbreaks of Delta and Omicron. But uh, what I was trying to point out was like, actually, we don't have a choice because our, the vaccination rate in our elderly is so low. Uh, I mean, the lowest among uh, the developed regions in the world, that uh, an outbreak of COVID 19 at this stage in Hong Kong at our current vaccination up- uptake rate would be absolutely disastrous. And I also cautioned that uh, in that post that this is uh, problematic going forwards because. Uh, we we need to have an end game right for covid-19 in hong kong and we're seeing a lot of places uh, in the world uh, depending on how they've actually gone about it are really approaching a pandemic endgame either because of huge swaths of the population getting naturally infected with lots of deaths or through very very high vaccination rates which has really um, you know kept those that 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 mortality and death rate under control so hong kong has to unfortunately is reaching a point where we really have to decide well what to do next Uh, and uh, we really need to think about how we see ourselves in the coming few months if not years In terms of positioning ourselves with respect to COVID-19, because the virus isn't going anywhere. So that was broadly, uh, I think, what I wanted to bring out in the post.
1: What were the responses you got from the Facebook post?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a wide spectrum of responses. Uh, Let me just say that. I think most people who saw the uh, canonical version (laughs) on Facebook were quite... We're quite okay with it. I, I don't think I said anything particularly controversial there. Uh, the problem is in some uh, interpretations of my post in the local media, in particular, they were uh, uh, they framed it in a way like I was advocating for you know giving up totally and uh, just letting it uh, rip through because it's not uh, going to work anyway. I, 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 and I think that's a very inaccurate uh, way of framing my position which was we still have to do what we have to do in terms of slowing down transmission in the community, which we're doing with by any means possible, but also kind of highlighting the uh, futility of continuing down this path into the future when the rest of the world is really waking up from its bad dream. So it's in a way it was kind of uh, like you know one of those job interview questions like what do you see yourself like in 2023 you know and I think Hong Kong needs to start asking itself that and that was kind of the point of the post but yeah I'm sure it always dies down so I'm sure I'll I'll uh, live to see another post <laughs>
1: Yeah, sure. Um So for listeners who haven't read uh, Dr. Sid's Facebook post, um he ended his post with this quote, for the rest of the world, 2022 is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. And for Hong Kong, it is just the end of the beginning. Dr. said you also mentioned the real issue behind the hamster calls in Hong Kong was zero COVID. Can you explain
0: that to us? Because the vaccination rates in Hong Kong are so low and the need for Hong Kong to maintain zero cases in the community as a preconditioning for even opening up to the mainland, we are essentially in a position where we have to keep cases at zero or near zero all the time it, it is necessary so i'm in no way saying that uh, let it rip okay so i mean some sections of the media are going crazy in terms of turning me into this poster boy of let it rip in hong kong oh boy that's that's not where i'm coming from it would be a disaster if you do that right now but in a sense um People are blaming proximal causes in terms of government policies on hamster culls or, uh, you know, the, 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 the building lockdowns that we're seeing recently, etc. There's a lot of criticism on that. But I, what I want to say is, uh, what choice do they have, you know, given the low vaccination rates in Hong Kong? And essentially what I want to bring out from that piece is that the only way forward is to really ramp up our vaccination rates for the elderly through any means possible, and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, in recent times, we've been talking about uh, vaccine passports uh, for getting into restaurants. And uh, I think that is a way forward. And I would entirely support that being extended to two or more doses for the elderly as a precondition for them going to uh, restaurants or other public places. Because honestly, by this stage of the pandemic, for their own good and for society's good, we really need to decide what to do and get our vaccination rates right up there with the other developed regions in the world.
1: Hong Kong has had two years of the pandemic and we had two months to prepare for Omicron. What could it have done better?
0: What's happened has happened, but going forwards, we need to message uh, to the public very clearly that this is not sustainable. And I think that's also partly what the post was about because there's very little, um, I would say, public discourse on this. We're very, very happy in our little uh, COVID-free shell and uh, perhaps ignoring the what's happening in the rest of the world has uh, brought us to this point, so I think that we, we really have to message to the public like Singapore did in the middle of last year that uh, unfortunately the only way forwards is to learn how to coexist and set a date, you know a firm deadline. This, this is the last bus that you want to catch if you want to protect yourself with the best in the best way possible against an inevitable surge of Omicron or whatever variant circulating at the time in Hong Kong. So we need to get that messaging and the sense of a deadline across, combined with vaccine passports, to get the vaccination as far as possible. Now, I, I must also say clearly that I'm not a fan of vaccine mandates. I, I, I mean, even after this, all uh, this disappointing uh, vaccination campaign. I I would still say that I think people do should have the right to choose, but uh, it must be made clear why this is the only logical course of action for the elderly in Hong Kong. And I think that has been uh, uh, perhaps a deficiency in in the way the vaccinations have been rolled out in Hong Kong.
1: Talking about Omicron, as the WHO put it, Omicron appears to be less severe than the Delta variant, but it shouldn't be considered mild. But then there's this very strong media narrative about Omicron being mild. Can
0: you talk us through what it really is? In terms of inherent reduction in virulence, the first point, there's also some evidence, preliminary evidence, that Omicron might be somewhat milder than previous variants, especially Delta, Okay, but not by much. So in a place like Hong Kong, um, where you have very few people with previous infections, relatively few people with vaccinations, Omicron would still cause a lot of damage because it's more transmissible. So you might have an inherently less virulent virus, but it's infecting more people. So the number of severe cases you end up with is exactly the same. So uh, imagine a very, very bad flu surge. We had this winter surge in Hong Kong before COVID-19. I would say um, it's easily going to be much, much worse. And I mean, I'm a healthcare worker and I know... Well, I, I suppose all healthcare workers have a keen sense of how much the system can take, and we are pretty much on our limits every flu surge, you know. So, imagine something that's much, much worse than that um, is is going to be very difficult. Uh, there's no doubt about it
1: in places like australia we're seeing the healthcare system you know close to collapse so many people are being hospitalized meaning people with other conditions can't get health care is that something of your concern in hong kong
0: absolutely um i mean in in the public healthcare system we're always struggling with long waiting times for uh basic procedures uh cancer therapy knee replacement uh, pe- pe- people have to wait you know and if uh what we do see with COVID surges around the world and also in Hong Kong during the initial waves was that a lot of elective procedures get cancelled. And um, if you have a lack of hospital capacity or ICU capacity, people who are coming into hospital with other unrelated emergencies might not get uh, perhaps the care that they should be receiving. And this is such a common narrative across the developed and developing world. And it, it, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Hong Kong would be no exception should it come to that. So, again, uh, it goes back to the same point. Our best way forward is to give the elderly the best protection that they can get. Um and, uh, uh, may I add whether they like it or not? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's what I'd have to say on that.
1: Right. Over the weekend, Professor Yun Kuo Yong expected that it would take at least two to three months, um, to bring the current wave in Hong Kong under control. What is your assessment? Do you think, um, it's going to be, um, more or less, you know, two to three months, or do you think it's going to take even longer?
0: Uh, Pro- well, um, very difficult to predict. It's go- it's probably going to take longer because I, if you recall our fourth wave, uh, it just it had such a long tail. You had these cases of unknown source uh, cropping up every now and then for a long, long period of time, and now you have such a transmissible virus, and in that anyone that could be infected might suddenly trigger a super spreading event. Uh, it's probably two to three months might actually be quite optimistic at this stage.
1: Dr. Zid, thank you for your time and thank you for your ongoing work.
0: No problems. Thank you.
1: One of the biggest international stories of Hong Kong's experience of the pandemic has not been how many cases we're reporting or how many deaths or how the health system is coping, but of how one of the world's toughest quarantine programs is affecting Asia's major finance hub. Someone who's been looking into this for the SEMP Business Desk may well be familiar to you if you listen to our sibling podcast.
3: Yeah, hi, it's uh, Chad Bray again. You may remember me from um, a neighboring podcast, the China Geopolitics podcast.
1: Ironically, Chad has just relocated from Hong Kong to London. He's well-placed to talk about what is being described as a mask exit of expats from Hong Kong's finance sector. This is being linked directly as a result of the strict rules demanding all people flying into Hong Kong, regardless of residency, vaccination, or test status, to stay in quarantine for 21 days, even though experts have suggested shortening the period. Chad, is this really the case?
3: Well, you know, the the situation, I I think, is one where uh, you have a lot of people who have been stuck in one place for a long time, for, you know, two years, if not longer, depending on what their travel plans were before the virus really emerged in early uh, 2020. And, you know, in this situation, Hong Kong's always been a place where people were able to work very hard during the week. And then if they want to go to Thailand for the weekend, for a long weekend, they can hop on a plane and they can be on the beach with a Mai Tai in their hand before you know it. Now, you know, in this situation, people have just been working extremely hard. And frankly, I I think a lot of spouses, a lot of children, um, you know, bankers themselves, are a little frustrated with the situation. If if they're an expat, they haven't been able to see family for for years, and so many of them are thinking, "Well, now's the situation where we see other parts of the world, whether it be the UK, the United States, even Singapore, that seem to be much more open than Hong Kong is." And so I think a lot of these people are thinking, "Well." We've taken our bonuses because bonus season is, is over or is about to be. And, you know, we're going to make our way out. And so a lot of people are reevaluating their lives. But I think that's happened throughout industries because of the pandemic. People work from home. They spent more time with their kids in Hong Kong. Maybe that's a little bit tight in a small flat. But, you know, in other places, it's like, well, maybe this is better.
1: Is it all about the people leaving Hong Kong, though? What about the hiring situation?
3: Well, I, you know, the, I, I think the situation is, is, is one where where there's always been an influx of talent into Hong Kong, whether it's young people that come to Hong Kong to go to university or, you know, young people or mid-career people who are really looking to to make a mark and particularly want a chance to work in Asia. Hong Kong's been a great place. You know, you have a relatively low tax rate. So if you're from a place such as the United Kingdom that, you know, as a high earner, you can be paying 40 percent or more, you know, that tax rate is a great benefit. Unfortunately, in this situation, it's very difficult to get into Hong Kong. So uh, as well as get out. So in my situation, for example, it took almost a month for me to Get out of Hong Kong um, in December because there were repeated flight cancellations. You know, is the cargo shipment going to be able to go? All these sorts of things. And so, if you're trying to come into Hong Kong, it, it's it, it's much more challenging. And frankly, a lot of people are are rethinking it. The Hong Kong Banker Association of Bankers, you know, uh, recently had a press conference and and they said that there's a talent shortage that that they're having a hard time. Attracting that expat talent that used to come now, you know, there are Hong Kongers, there are mainlanders who want to work in the city and there are ways to to, you know, as the city becomes much more closer to the mainland, you know, for for finance through the greater Bay Area and things where having those language skills of Cantonese, of Mandarin, of English is helpful and not all expat bankers have that, but you know, it it is making Hong Kong a less desirable location just because of the difficulty getting in. If it's 21 days for you once you arrive, you know, how are you going to travel anywhere and how are you going to do business throughout Asia?
1: What about this media narrative that more and more people and businesses are thinking of relocating to Singapore?
3: Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people have been evaluating the situation in Hong Kong. You know, whether it's the anti-sanctions law, the national security law, the coronavirus, you know, a, a lot of people are rethinking where do we need to be. So we've seen, you know, businesses beyond finance who have gone and said, well, maybe Hong Kong's not the best spot for us. And they've put operations in Korea. They've put operations in Singapore. But all of that, you know. Doesn't always work out exactly the way you want. I mean, Singapore certainly has, uh, you know, a large connection to the mainland. But if you want to do business in the mainland, Hong Kong's the place to be. If you want to do, you know, business in the mainland, Korea's a, a more difficult spot at at times. And and so I, I think everybody's trying to figure out what they want to do. But Singapore definitely has been trying to play into this to try to attract people, and they've made. Uh, a number of sort of changes to try to to do that. But at the same time, they have their own restrictions, they have their own difficulties. And frankly, th- there's been a lot of pushback about foreign workers moving to Singapore. And so, you know, that's harder uh, in terms of trying to, to really um, convince people to stay if you're going to face situations for being a foreigner there.
1: What of this idea that Hong Kong is losing its status as the global finance hub in Asia and specifically losing it to Singapore?
3: Um, I, I think people are hedging their bets. Companies are hedging their bets it, because the, the situation is, is that COVID as it currently stands is not going to be this forever. Life is going to return retor- to some form of normalcy. Now, the question is when, when it comes to Hong Kong. Here in the UK, they've decided that we're going to, quote unquote, live with COVID. And so they've, you know, as of this morning, taken a number of travel restrictions out. They've made it easier for people to, to get about. They, they're not requiring masks uh, when you go into shops, um, but they're sort of recommending that you have them. You know, it's a very different situation than it is on the ground in Hong Kong. At some point, you know, money will bring people back because they want to be able to cash in on the world's second largest economy, mainland China. And the place to do that is Hong Kong. But I think the past two years and particularly the past year have started to strain you know, people's opinions on the city and how much is it worth it? And can I make it work from Singapore? Can I make it work from somewhere else? You know, I think everybody's reevaluating where should we be? Who should we have boots on the ground with? What should we do? Is it better to be in Shanghai? Is it better to be in Shenzhen than it is Hong Kong? Because Hong Kong, as it stands, still is difficult to get into the mainland. So, you know, I think everybody's thinking about where do we want to be in five years, in 10 years. We're sort of moving beyond the temporary COVID situation in terms of people planning.
1: This week, we've heard the news from Professor Yun Kwok Yong that this fifth wave of the virus is going to take another three to five months to play out. And as you said, it's the end of bonus season. People in finance sectors are thinking about their futures How is this going to play out?
3: Well, I I think the question is going to be, how tied are you to Hong Kong? So I have a banker source who I had lunch with before I left. And, you know, he's from the UK. His family has been here. His son's in boarding school. Um, But Hong Kong is home now. You know he he basically told me that you know his his parents have passed away and 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 really his ties are in Hong Kong. And that's where he's making his bets. And so I think if you've been there for a significant period of time and you've put down roots and, and it's home as an expat, it's home unless your company says we're gone. But you know for people who are starting out, for people who are looking for opportunities, They may wait. They may go somewhere else in Asia for now. I mean, I I, I don't think Hong Kong's dead. You can't say that. You know, I I think Hong Kong has too much money on the table for people to push back and say, we're done with the city. You know, I think things are a little more challenging and I think things are changing in a way that some people are rethinking, you know, what they're going to do and do they want to be there. But for a lot of people, you know, they'll figure it out if there's a way to bank on it.
1: That's Chad Bray from The Business Desk. And we will, of course, be following his stories with compound interest on SCMP.com. Now, originally at this point of the podcast, we had planned to bring you my conversation with Gigi Choi, who works on the Hong Kong desk and is part of the team filing daily, almost hourly, on new updates of the fifth wave of the pandemic here in Hong Kong. She was going to detail the past week here in Hong Kong as we moved from 80 days without a single case of community transmission to one of daily triple-digit increases in new reported cases. For the first time in Hong Kong, we are seeing something we've only seen in mainland China, and that is entire apartment towers locked down for five to seven days to allow authorities to test thousands of residents. But because of the rapidly changing development in the past 24 hours, we've had to cut much of that. But it's still worthwhile hearing from her because she did pioneer a courageous effort to try and document every single case and how they were linked via flowcharts. And she published them on Twitter. As far as we know, it's the first time someone has attempted this in Hong Kong. As I mentioned, you're making huge contributions to public information these days by publishing flowcharts on the clusters and spreads in Hong Kong. And you've been publishing them on Twitter, detailing all the clusters. What made you do that?
4: Yeah, so I'm actually a very uh, visual person. So I like to see things like in diagrams and stuff. And um, that's kind of what I did to keep track of, you know, cases as they were growing in the clusters. I mean, of course, we input all of the information into a spreadsheet, but I think it's very different when you're able to sort of connect like the dots, connect the lines between like one case and who they spread the disease to. When you try to read a spreadsheet and figure out like who case A is, who case B or case C is. So when you actually have it all mapped out, you're very quickly able to tell like who infected who, how, you know, big of a spread was it. And, you know, because I was doing that anyway, I figured like, hey, like this is really helpful for me. Why don't I try to put this out there in the public so people who are interested can also follow along? The flow charts actually
1: kind of look like a COVID family tree, right? Did it add perspectives when you're able to see all these cases how they're linked to each other
4: yeah i mean like actually a lot of them are family or household members so it kind of made sense but seeing like the cases maybe like one case goes to a school and then how that sort of connection created new cases like that was really helpful and you know it's actually kind of funny because uh some people like they were who are following along they uh there was one person who actually um edited hamsters onto my pet shop flowchart. So that was quite fun. And it's just nice to be able to interact with people, you know, every day as I was making these flowcharts and people were really helpful. They would like make suggestions. So um, at first I would just kind of write the gender, uh, the age and, sort of how it was connected to a case but then you know people who were really interested would ask me like hey can you include the confirmation date the case numbers uh and you know additional information like that and actually somebody asked me to include the uh, vaccination status as well so I don't know like it just felt like together we were sort of creating this I guess database for the public just so they could figure out and keep track of what was going on as well. Because, I mean, like, if you go to these press conferences, it's just an overload of information. And sometimes you can write it all out in words, but I don't know, sometimes a picture can show you more than a whole bunch of sentences.
1: Yeah, so they've kind of become crowdsourced cluster charts, but it's somewhat symbolic that you have had to stop making these. Why is that?
4: Oh, yeah, I mean... um, (laughs) Funny enough, like um, I actually had to ask people, like, "Hey, like, how do I <laughs> make the, uh, the sheets bigger?" Because I was starting to struggle with already before the explosion at uh, Kwai Chung Estate, I was already struggling to put, um, like, for example, th- with the dance cluster, fifty something people into the chart. And you know, as the cases grow, um, the health authorities also don't give as much information about how the cases are linked. You know, with hundreds of cases at Kwai Chung Estate, I just wasn't able to show how the cases were linked at all. And I really can't put 100 cases onto a flow chart. So I decided to end it there just because it, was, it would have been too much information and I had to stop. <laughs> Gigi, where can we follow you on Twitter? Sure, it's at Gigi underscore Choi. So G-I-G-I underscore C-H-O-Y.
1: Gigi, you have had a very long day today, and tomorrow is going to be another long day for you. Thank you so much for your work.
4: Sure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's all we have for you in this last week before the start of a very different sort of Lunar New Year here in Hong Kong. The government has once again canceled the fireworks display over the harbor. Restaurants and bars will remain closed after 6 p.m., It looks like the year of the tiger will start with a whimper, not a bang. But as ever, the SCMP newsroom is filing 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to scmp.com. That's where you'll find all the latest developments, news and analysis from our reporters in Hong Kong, Europe, the US, and across mainland China and the rest of Asia. My name is Holly Chick, wishing you and your family 新年快乐,身体健康, stay safe. And here's hoping you can stay positive and test negative. Bye for now.
3: And that's right on time for Mr. Drill. (laughs) Smoke him if you got him.
1: Yeah, just a few seconds for me to read through this.
3: (laughs) Yeah, all right.
1: Okay. And now, there are four major clusters